0: Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week, we're digging into the archives to listen to an old conversation among ASP staff about Afghanistan. You know, unfortunately, as much as things change in the world, a lot of the things in Afghanistan have stayed the same. This week, we're hearing from three voices no longer with ASP, but still important voices talking about important discussions. It was a moderated conversation among Paul Hamill, Josh Faust, who was then an ASP fellow specializing in defense issues, development policy, and terrorism, and uh, Michael Cohen, ASP senior fellow specializing in foreign assistance, insurgencies, and and author of a number of books. Michael Cohen's now a writer for the Boston Globe, and Josh Faust has moved on to bigger and better things, as has Paul. But we're going to dredge up this, this old discussion because I think it's still relevant. As the world goes into the next steps in Afghanistan, whether it's Doha agreement and a rapprochement between the U.S. and the Taliban, some of the, the, the same things, the same problems that we were facing then in 2011, we're still facing today. At that time, the Obama administration had laid out three goals on how to win in Afghanistan, defeating al-Qaeda, reversing gains by the Taliban, and, and building Afghan security. Those are still at the core of what I think we should be doing in Afghanistan. We don't know what the next steps are, and we didn't know then either. context of the discussion at the time was the release of ASP's report that Josh had written called, Are We Winning? And it was a report on U.S. measure of success in Afghanistan. He comes to the conclusion in the report that success in Afghanistan is still unclear 10 years later. Now here we are 19 years later, 19 years after the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And I'd say the ultimate success of the the endeavor is just as unclear now as it was then. A couple of quotes worth mentioning from the discussion. Putting troops in danger for something we can't define. And if we failed, what do we have left? All of these make me think of some of the discussions from the end of Vietnam. One of our board members famously saying, how do you be the last person to die for a mistake? And that, of course, was uh, was John Kerry in testimony to, to Congress in, in the early 1970s. Anyway, this is an interesting way for us to look back and bring up some of ASP's history. Send me an email at info at org on how you think our analysis held up. I look forward to hearing from you, and and now let's get on with the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to the ASP podcast. The American Security Project is a bipartisan think tank looking to some of the big national security issues facing us all. We aim to create strategic consensus and foster mature debate. These bi-weekly podcasts are part of this mission. Today, we're joined by Joshua Faust. Josh is a fellow at ASP specializing in defense and development policy. Prior to this, he was a military intelligence analyst specializing in social-cultural dynamics of irregular warfare. And, of course, he blogs regularly. And we have Michael Cohen. Michael is a senior fellow here at ASP. He has written extensively on Afghanistan, foreign assistance, insurgencies, and he's also the author of a number of books on political speech-making. He also blogs regularly. This week, ASP published a major report on Afghanistan, discussing the nature of the conflict there, as well as the metrics used to measure success. So, Josh, what is the nature of the conflict there? Well, it's interesting. Uh,
2: what's happening in Afghanistan right now is there are two wars being fought. There's one the Taliban is fighting, which is primarily political. It's about... Winning information battles, it's about influence, persuasion, perception. And then there's another war that ISAF is winning, which is much more conventional. Focused on controlling territory, focused on physical measurements of success in the war, like how many insurgents that they've killed off. And what's basically happening is the two parties, the two major parties to the war at least, are essentially talking past each other. They're fighting different wars with different kinds of outcomes. And in their own ways, they're each seeing success at what they want to do. What we've seen over the last year or so is that ISAF has become very effective at killing people in Afghanistan. They've become very effective at targeting people within the insurgency, killing them or taking them off the battlefield in some way. But what we've also seen at the same time is that the Taliban has become effective at affecting the political makeup and and environment within Afghanistan as well. So when we look at, at what the major violent actions are that have happened in Afghanistan over the last year, we see these spectacular, somewhat complicated attacks on the civilian government in Afghanistan that overall don't do a whole lot of damage and, in the grand scheme of things, don't kill very many people. But what they end up doing is having a devastating social effect, in particular in people living in Kabul and also on Afghanistan's elite. And what we try to measure in this report is actually can we capture the way that this war is being fought in both a political and a military sense? And in trying to figure this out, what we found is we actually can't. Because many of the metrics that we're choosing to look at the war through just aren't being captured properly or aren't even being measured at all.
1: And and what what are those uh, new sort of metrics you've discussed in the report? Right. So looking
2: at metrics requires asking what winning or what victory actually means. And so we chose to start from the foundation of President Barack Obama's strategic statements on the war which were based on three main goals. So the first one was to either degrade or defeat Al-Qaeda so that it can't launch attacks against the United States anymore. Uh, his second pillar or goal was to uh, arrest the momentum of the Taliban and reverse it so it can no longer threaten the government with a takeover. And the third one was to build the capacity of the Afghan security forces and the government so that they can run their own country by themselves and without our help. So from those three main pillars, we derived nine different metrics. Uh, looking at things like political participation, uh, agricultural production, other kinds of economic output, um, but then also somewhat less tangible metrics, like the violent rhetoric coming from community and religious leaders, uh, the way people are reacting to their local government, which is not the same as whether they choose to vote in an election. Uh, We also discounted, and I thought this was kind of an interesting Uh, dynamic that emerged in the course of uh, of, of our assembling this paper, is we ended up discounting the role that violence plays. A lot of the discussion about whether or not Afghanistan is being won or lost is focused on the question of violence. What we found is that violence in Afghanistan only matters as much as it affects the politics of the war. So even though violence could very well be decreasing by some metrics, that doesn't actually mean that the war itself is being won. It just means that the nature of violence is
1: changing, and it's having different effects. And I think one of the interesting ones was was childhood literacy. Right. So we're not, where we now measure a number of children going to school, we actually don't measure the outcome. Of that.
2: Right, and I think you could probably summarize this paper by saying instead of looking at inputs to the policy process, which is what ISAF tends to measure, what we want to look at are the outputs. So when you look at say a given number of insurgents taken off the battlefield, that's neat, but what we're interested in is what effect taking those insurgents off the battlefield has actually had. In some areas, like in Helmand province, taking thousands and thousands and thousands of people off the battlefield and either killing them or putting them in jail has had an effect. It's lowered the amount of violence, overall violence, that's happening in Helmand Province. But nationwide, this huge influx of high-value targeting strikes really hasn't had much of an effect on the Taliban's ability to either intimidate people or to influence people or to control territory. And to me, that's a really interesting thing, is that despite this huge influx and a very specific tactic that posts impressive-seeming numbers, those numbers are really just inputs. And when you look at the output of that, the the... Question of whether or not it was a good idea becomes much more muddled.
3: You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think one of the things that you uh, you pick up on the report is that um, you know, this whole question of are we winning or not. There, to think about are we winning, you need to have sort of a, a you have, you can do it two, one of two ways. You can think of it as a military endgame, you defeat the enemy and you wipe them out. or You have a political endgame. And considering the nature of the war in Afghanistan, you would think that it would be really a, you'd have a political endgame. But what's interesting is that only in the last three months or so have had the administration. In any significant way, to find a political endgame for Afghanistan. I mean, think about this: when you go back and look at, and, and it's interesting that you some of the metrics you were looking at, you got to look at, a, at President Obama's West Point speech in December of two thousand nine. There's no political uh, uh, yep. path laid out in that in that speech. Um, and in a sense, everything is seen through the metrics of the military, and so you know the military thinks about well: if we improve governance, this will actually help us see the Taliban. I mean. As irrespective of whether actually good governance is capable of people being produced, or whether it actually is a, is a is a good thing for Afghanistan, or how it or how, you know, centralized governance can actually is that actually the best thing for Afghanistan's future. So I think what you what you pick up on a little bit is that this consistent failure of the administration um, to think about this war in political terms, and 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 also not just in not just in Afghanistan political terms, but actually in American political terms. Um, I mean, what's actually fascinating in a way is how much the war and the, the direction of the war has been determined by domestic politics.
2: Yeah, although I, I guess that's not terribly surprising. Because <laughs> no, it's actually not, <laughs> domestic unfortunately. Domestic politics tend to drive foreign policy decisions. Uh, no, but I mean, I think the phrase that I use very deliberately in the paper is strategic incoherence to describe what Obama wants. When you look at, at kind of the three basic concepts of the strategy, two of them are defined by absence. So yes. we have to keep doing something so that this one eventuality may never happen. Uh, that means that a single example of al-Qaeda popping its head up in Afghanistan and launching an attack on the United States means the strategy has failed in some way, right. that it hasn't been achieved. And that's that's lunacy. And then the other one about building capacity, I mean, I guess the only analogy I could think of would be defining whether or not someone is rich. Is that you can tell if someone's rich and you can tell if someone's poor, but where's that line when you cross from being poor to being rich. We don't have a good sense of what that means in this country or anywhere else. And when it comes to looking at what a reasonable capacity is for the Afghan security forces and the Afghan government to function on their own, we have no idea what line needs to be crossed or what corner needs to be turned where they stop being dysfunctional and start being functional.
1: But it also seems to me that, that the, the, the political goal within that, that segment of boosting Afghan security forces and Afghan government is to create this over-centralized, monolithic Right. Almost Soviet, dare I say, um, system, of having a huge military force controlling the whole country.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, Paul Obama is a socialist. so Keep that in mind right there. Um, <laughs> 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 but I, I but think and,
1: and, and for our
3: listeners to know that was a joke. <laughs> that was a joke. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Just kidding. Um, but I think what's, what you, you point an interesting an interesting point here that that the you know. There, this lack of sort of political thought process. I mean, you're about centralization. It's a great point. We think, okay, well, we need to build up the Afghan security forces. We need to build up the Afghan governments. They can go into places like Helmand and provide services. I mean... A smarter policy might have sat back and said, "Wait a minute, is this the most effective way to improve governance in Afghanistan? Is it maybe better to decentralize those powers to local to local governors in Afghanistan in in local provinces?" So I think you know it, it's a it's a lack of it's it's basically coming to the war coming to this with with a very simple model a military model and not thinking through the political implications of, of what the war would would entail. And you know again I think what's happened now in the last if you look at uh, President Obama's speech from July, you know. There is more. There is now sort of a uh, a recognition, I guess, that there needs to be a political resolution. But I see no insinci- indication whatsoever that that has actually transformed U.S. policy in the region. In fact, it still seems to be. It seems to be what we said for two years was we're going to build up the military and try to win the war. And now we're not. Now <laughs> we're doing the opposite. And the, the 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 note. And you know, it's enough to say we support reconciliation. You actually have to do something about it. And there's been no, I have no sense at all that the administration is, is interested in doing that or trying to do that.
2: And I'd even take that a step further and say that the last several months of statements from Ambassador Crocker have demonstrated a kind of political tone deafness about what's happening.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, it may mean that there's a tone deafness in, in Afghan terms on this, but probably in, in American terms is the political plan is to get out.
3: Yeah. That is the political plan. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, and I think, and, I, and to what your point, I mean, you early about domestic politics. I mean, part of the reason why we escalated was, I mean, uh, because I like, think the fear of the Obama administration of being seen as weak and, and not, and not, and and I think fear of, of getting into a food fight with the with the military about escalation in Afghanistan. I mean, I I give the president a lot of credit for you know saying pulling the plug after eighteen months and saying this isn't working. We need to something different. But you need to actually do something different. It's not just a question of saying we're going to you know we're going to escalate in '09. We're going to draw it out in 2011. Without thinking about the politics of this and and, and I, what I worry about is that if there's not some real push on political reconciliation in the near future it's going to be too late and you're going to basically both sides the Pakistanis, the Afghan government, the Taliban are going to solidify their positions and I think you know one way to look at you know President Karzai's trip to India this past week and the signing of the strategic partnership is his indication that you know he's a very emotional guy i 'm sure he's upset about the assassinations as he should be, but a realization that uh, he needs to find new partners, and that he can't rely on the U.S. as a long-term partner. He needs to think about, well, can I rely on the Indians? That's not going to help uh, the peace process, I think.
1: And, and that's, that's our own fault.
3: Uh, that is our own fault. I agree what with that. We, we've basically put Karzai in a position where he he kind of has no choice but to, but to reach out to the Indians a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it, it, depending, again, I mean, this does depend on how the strategic partnership agreement ends up working itself out and whether or not there's, there's a long-term U.S. presence there. But if I was Karzai, I wouldn't be counting on that.
1: Yeah. And and so the the people who really suffer are the Afghans.
3: Absolutely. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I mean that that's the real that's the real I mean our interests will be protected I mean, if we hadn't escalated our interests would have been protected in my view, but it's the Afghan people who are gonna suffer from this because the, you, you the chances of return to civil war I think are, are growing growing stronger every day.
2: They are. And I, I, I think one one of the other angles to consider about the the political side of this is that um, not just me, but then also journalists that I know and other analysts who do have inroads into the Administration and into the Defense Department have been trying to get a sense of what their plans are for a post-2014 Afghanistan. Uh, There are mixed messages about how many troops are going to be withdrawn by that point. There's no message about what they're going to be doing after that, how they're going to be positioned, what their mission is going to be, what their plans are. and so. You know, we, we, we look at this, there's a presidential election coming up. I get that people are reluctant to make really long-term plans, when they have no idea who's going to be in the White House, but we're putting in place policies that have years of lead time on them, and then also years of effect afterward. And we're not thinking about what they're actually going to do, or how we can even react to them. And that, that, that really worries me, because not just Afghanistans are going to suffer, but if we have, say, 10, 15, 20,000 troops left in Afghanistan in 2015 with no plan for how to really use them effectively, we're just wasting their time, our time and putting them in danger for something that we can't define. And I think that's completely outrageous.
3: Yeah, I mean, think of it this way. If we had started in December of 2009 uh, a parallel political process uh, of reconciliation, we might, by this point, have seen some slight glimmers of, of hope. <laughs> well, the, the notion that you could do it now and have hope in the next few months is unlikely. I,
1: I mean, to be fair to the administration, they, they said and they they want a political reconciliation process.
3: Well, <laughs> oh, okay. I want to. Yeah. I want to be shortstop for the Boston Red Sox. I don't think that's going to happen either. Actually, <laughs> I,
1: well, I don't know. Actually, <laughs> I'm,
2: not, I'm not a good fielder. Well,
3: uh, but
2: I think importantly, how that reconciliation is
3: structured yeah, matters. Absolutely, a lot too. I, I, the
2: terms that they present the Taliban with are essentially surrender. They say, "Give up all exactly. your goals, stop using violence to achieve them, accept everything that we want you to accept, and then we can talk about reconciliation." Right. And from the Taliban's perspective, that's not actually a choice.
3: And so. It's not. A, it's not a, a very effective political. I mean, we have very little leverage, frankly. Right. Um, you know, they have more. I mean, we the leverage we could provide is by actually giving provide opening a door to this. We're basically saying to them, as you said, surrender and then we'll talk. Well, the, the, the Taliban aren't going to do that. They they can clearly can, can can wait us out. And of course, if you consider with the Pakistanis as well, they this also encourages them to be more intransigent too, because they don't see any real hope of, of furthering their interests in Afghanistan. So, in a sense, we've, we've, we really, we 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 close the door in many ways. Um, back in 2009 on reconciliation, and now we're paying the price for that. And, 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 and actually, I say now we're paying the price. Now the Afghans are going to pay the yeah. Afghan people are going to pay the exactly. price for this. Yeah.
1: I mean, to pivot this slightly and, and sort of take it to the higher level, I, I think what this shows is, is that we need political strategies first before we engage in military issues. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, Absolutely. And that also means we need to be smarter about how we do things, which turns out to be cheaper.
2: Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, and you know, one of the big regrets that everyone in the Bush administration says is, well, we shouldn't have taken our attention off of Afghanistan in 2003. Um, That really wasn't a secret at the time, uh, that pulling things out, pulling people, resources, attention out of Afghanistan, focusing it somewhere else, would mean nothing gets done in Afghanistan for years at a time, because you just don't have anyone there to do much. Um, I mean, we, we're not incapable of thinking smartly about this. We're incapable of acting smartly, which I think is a very different thing. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, that someone in charge, especially the president, has to deal with is he's facing, an enorm- and this was true of President Bush as well, he's facing an enormous amount of domestic political pressure, both from his own side and then also from his opposition, to do certain things that may not be the smart thing to do. And being able to navigate through that and actually make a difficult decision that might be re- very unpopular at the time, I, it's just not terribly likely.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, we've seen this from several presidents over the last well fifty years, at least.
3: I mean, it's funny. It's really funny because I'm part of my research, in my book. I'm I'm, I'm looking a lot at, at Vietnam, and, and I was just you know sort of going over this sort of Vietnam discussions in the early '60s, even the Kennedy administration, and there was no discussion back then about political res- political settlement, political resolution. It wasn't even on the table. It was all about, you know, what is the military solution to this conflict? So it's sort of, it's sort of a, there's, there's a, a track record here of constantly doing this. And, and to your point about, you know, in Afghanistan, of course the U.S. took the ball, to eye off the ball in Afghanistan. I think we all agree with that. But they could have, you know, gone to war in Iraq and still, you know, opened yeah. up a political track in Afghanistan that at least recognized, as the Pakistanis were begging us to do, recognized some political role for the Taliban, and, and we refused to do it. And I we think, I, to your point, I think largely out of... Um, uh, fear of being well, we can't give in to the terrorists. We can't give in to the Taliban. I mean, we can't it was, it was fear
2: though, but it, it was also pride because I mean, sure, I was, absolutely, I was privy to some of these conversations within the Defense Department in 2008, and the way that they described it is well, opening negotiations with the insurgents is surrender. It was, we can't give in to terrorists, but it was also, we can't admit that what we're... They, they wouldn't say this, it, it was implied. Right. It was, we can't admit that what we're doing is wrong, because that would imply yeah. that we failed. And, and if we failed, then what do we have left? Right. And
1: this is not a party political issue, it, it's actually how government works.
2: Oh yeah, it has nothing to do with the parties, at yeah. all. I th- it, it is a systemic issue, because yeah. we're seeing the exact same problems with the Democrat pres- president that we had with the Republican president. Right,
3: Right. I mean, I th- and I think in a sense you know, when you also define the Taliban as a sort of existential foe and as this vital national, in, national interest to defeat them, it's very hard to then turn around and say, well, now we're going to talk to them. I mean, we took us five years to do it in Vietnam, it, or not five, three years to do it in, Viet, in Vietnam, um, and we haven't even really embraced the idea in Afghanistan either. I mean, we really haven't embraced the, the notion that the Taliban is a political actor that has a, respon- has a role to play in, in Afghanistan's political future. Um I think... That's that's a failure of imagination. It's also a failure of politics. And I think, to be honest, I know the, there's probably a fear, you know, that to do that, that we open our, open the administration up to criticism, that they're weak on national security. Nobody cares. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? No, no, most Americans don't care. And and, and and the fact is that it's not going to be something. That's gonna, it, the political price for doing that is minimal, yeah, and it, the political benefit actually is, is kind of huge because what you leave is, is actually a win. Yeah. Right. Exactly.
2: Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, but that's
3: that. the problem: is that wins are often defined by. Did you defeat the enemy? Did you militarily defeat the enemy? You know, a, an uncertain victory in which your enemy is still has some political role isn't seen in some areas as a win.
1: Which is which is incredibly interesting because now we're in the second decade of the 21st century. That could be what winning is. No, that think should so. be. Yeah, you know, um, that the place is left stable.
3: Right. Yeah. Well, that's that. That to me seems like victory. I'm sure for most. Um, the citizens of afghanistan it would seem like victory as well uh... the problem is we i don't i don't know that we i, mean, I think we see stability but stability in a very um, simplistic way stability yeah. means that, yeah. <laughs> that we win well, or, we, or, or we leave a dictator <laughs> or
2: i think what they mean stability is it, stability means that there's no conflict and no violence which isn't quite the same thing that's true and you know the, to me one of the, the biggest things is it, even the title of this paper, Are We Winning, I think is kind of silly, because I've never thought of Afghanistan as a war that to, needs to be won, but rather a problem that needs to be managed. Right. And instead of looking at it in those terms, there will be cyclical conflict in Afghanistan. There always has been. Yeah. We can't solve that. And pretending like we can, like we can remove people, either violently contesting government control or just contesting government control somewhere, I think is, is yeah, yeah, incredibly yeah, yeah, yeah. hubris. Uh, but I, th-
1: I think there are, this, there are cis- cyclical political silence... Uh, uh, cycles everywhere in the world. We have yeah. that here in America, as, as we see the the, the the grassroots rise up against government control. Uh, all, Absolutely. All, all in different issues. Here, it, it, it's done by the ballot box. Um, well, and
2: know, I mean, there, there's violence in America, and, and that's not why people would describe us as unstable. They would describe us as unstable for maybe other reasons, economic (laughs) or financial reasons. But, you know, within Afghanistan, to me, someone contesting the control of Hamid Karzai's government doesn't strike me as an inherently unstable thing to do or a destabilizing thing to do. Especially if there are means in place where the government and the person contesting it can then resolve that in some way. Even if it requires divesting government control of somewhere, that's still the government controlling its territory and exercising authority in a way. That is victory, even though right now we would describe that as defeat.
3: You know, I have to say, I, I Back to this issue about winning, I, I would love to see the phrases "winning" and "losing" banished from all discussions of of, uh, of military <laughs> conflict in the future, because this isn't like World War II, where you know you you this is not the take same. Berlin. It's not, un- <laughs> it's not unconditional surrender, right? You yeah. don't take Berlin. It, it doesn't work that way, and it hasn't worked that way for a very long time. I mean, there's the obvious exceptions, but for the most part, you know, it's about how do you further U.S. interests and how do you create uh, situations. Uh, I, mean,
1: I mean, let's face it: at the end of this, the Second World War, uh, Japan's are really interesting because we. Actually, change the unconditional surrender issue because <laughs> that's in a way we because did. Because we right. s- we you're said right. that you could keep the emperor.
3: Right, right. No, it's true. I mean, and in the sense, but like that, even even that example, that you wouldn't even the, think about Korea or Vietnam or all these wars you follow the, the the outcome is always an uncertain one, and it's one in which, and and this is true for throughout history. I mean, you know. Wars don't always come to neat, tidy endings. And, and I think, for a place like Afghanistan, too, I think, again, saying that we can win or we can have victory, it's just the wrong framework. And, and, and,
1: and I think what we've decided here is that when we go into mm-hmm. conflicts and saying there is a win or lose, we make things worse. Absolutely. And we make it longer.
2: Well, we, we handcuff yes. ourselves. We, preve- we right. prevent ourselves from viewing the problem as it actually is, and we try to impose some kind of weird World War II framework on it that's just inappropriate.
1: Yeah. Well... Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Michael. My pleasure. And thank you, Josh. Until next time.